0: welcome back to another edition of the dog and duck show my name is warren i am the dog with me as always is mark schmore mark it's good to be back after a little uh, hiatus i spent last week in the mountains of lake tahoe doing some snowboarding with a good friend of mine and uh, you were keeping things rolling with the sports time machine how did that go
1: we fired up uh fired up the time machine again and rather than focusing on the northwest we we kind of went across all sports and so you know we uh kept steve bartman from interfering with that foul ball in chicago and we helped scott norwood make that that field goal in the super bowl and i think uh you know we had a lot of fun and did some did some good work
0: (laughs) i love it i love it well it's good to be back and uh thanks to jake for jumping in and we'd love to have him back anytime he wants to get on the show and uh, talk some dog and ducks and sports whatever Jake you're always welcome thank you for for being a part of that with us uh, but let's get right into it we've got uh, just a little bit of dog news things are kind of slow right now uh, before we get into spring practices and all those kind of things but the dogs took another blow through the transfer portal. Just uh, yesterday, Puka Nakua, who was slated to be our number one wide receiver going into 2021, uh, announced that he was entering the transfer portal, uh, subsequently announced his commitment to go to BYU, his hometown school, alongside of his older brother, Samson Nakua, who had entered the transfer portal from Utah just a week or two earlier. So it seems like that was something bigger than just the Huskies and any kind of a you know disagreement with the philosophy or the culture of the dogs. It, it seems like this was a guy that probably after a year of being isolated with COVID and being stuck in his room, he was just really ready to get home and yep. get closer to family and have the opportunity to, to put on with his brother at BYU.
1: Yeah, that, w- that would make uh, you would think it might be for a football reason if, if uh, the BYU's quarterback was still there. <laughs> but since he's going to be drafted uh, near the top of the NFL draft, uh, it, that's kind of an unknown uh, for BYU. But it certainly sounds like that was made for reasons that maybe go beyond what happens on the football field. Yep. So once again, the
0: transfer portal uh, strikes again, and um, this is just going to be a part of college football moving forward, unless there's some major, you know, legislative changes within uh, the structure of college football. It seems like free agency is now a reality for college football moving forward. Another little side note, as I mentioned, Utah, so the saga of Ale Cahoe continues. Originally, he committed to the University of Washington, enrolled in classes, but did not participate in classes, mysteriously decided to leave, go to Alabama where he spent the last three years. And then he announced his re-entry into the transfer portal, committed to go to Utah, and then just yesterday announced that he was going to UCLA. So. Uh, you know, where he stops, nobody knows, but, uh, best of luck to that young man who certainly seems like he's had a hard time figuring out
1: what, uh,
0: what is home for him.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: But I know, uh, a good friend of ours, JJ, who's been on the show. He, you know, he, I think hit the nail on the head with that. I think the Huskies and really the ducks dodged a bullet. And him not staying at Utah, I feel a lot more confident about UCLA's
1: ability to mishandle this uh, <laughs> than Utah. So, uh, uh, you know, I I can't go with you there, Warren, for the simple reason that uh, the defensive coordinator, you know, at UCLA is the former defensive line coach at Oregon under uh, under Chip Kelly, and so I kind of have a you know there's part of me that's rooting for ucla to to take a big step forward next season as far as their standing relative to the other teams in the south so i'm i'm pulling for the kid to do it but i think if i'm objective then i would agree with you that uh, utah has a much better track record of developing those defensive prospects well like i said things are pretty
0: slow on the football side of things but We are just a day away from the kickoff of the Pac-12 basketball tournament and Oregon is going in with quite a bit of momentum. Mark, give us your thoughts about this Oregon basketball team and uh, what their prospects
1: are of really making a run into March. Well, it's interesting, Warren. A a few weeks ago, you know, we just kind of did a check-in on the basketball front and I think what I told you was, that Oregon was kind of hovering around the bubble, uh, that they missed a lot of time with COVID, but that Dana Altman had a track record of his teams always playing much better at the end of the year than they did at the beginning of the year. And I mean, pretty much since I said that, Oregon has not lost. They've won 10 of their last 11 to finish the season. And it's kind of funny after the, the football season that we had where Oregon uh, won the Pac-12 under kind of less than ideal circumstances. So they were named the Pac-12 champs with a 14-4 and record. Uh, USC actually had a 15-5 and record. They played all of their conference games, won more games than Oregon, but did not have the same winning percentage, beat Oregon head-to-head, so there are a lot of UCLA fans that feel like they were robbed of a of a conference title, and I think have you know some some argument there. But uh, but they had made the rule at the beginning of the season that it would be winning percentage, which would uh, determine the outcome. And so Oregon wins the Pac-12 for the second year in a row, regular season champs. They won it last year too, before that season was canceled due to COVID. So. Uh, yeah, I'm as a, as a Duck fan, I'm really excited to see how they carry that forward into the Pac-12 tournament and then uh, into the NCAA tournament. They're definitely peaking at the right time. So, Mark, I know as a,
0: a Duck fan, you've got to feel pretty good about the direction of the Duck football team and the Duck basketball team, albeit both have precariously questionable uh Pac-12 championships on their uh, resume for this last calendar year, but still we'll give it to them. Uh, where do you think this ranks Oregon in terms of that the national combo of basketball, football uh, as, a, as a university?
1: This is a great a great question. I always think about it in terms of like, if I were Charlie Ward or the modern day equivalent, and I was looking for a school where I could play football and basketball, where would I have the best chance to do the best in both sports? And, you know, for a while, the answer was like Florida, when they had Billy Donovan and Urban Meyer as their coaches, it was like unanimous that they were, they were pretty much the best basketball and football teams for, for a couple of years there. Uh, You know, Michigan state had a run where it was Tom Izzo and Mark D'Antonio. And that was a, that was a really good combination. I think Oregon is Is near the top of that list. If you think about Mario Cristobal, uh, has been to has won a Rose Bowl and Dana Altman has been to a Final Four and they've done that both within the last three or four years. There are not a lot of other uh programs that can boast of those heights. There were there were two programs that came to mind uh when I was thinking through this. Uh, there is one school that has a national champion winner on both the football coaching staff and the basketball coaching staff. And that is North Carolina. You've got Roy Williams and you've got Mack Brown. Now the difference there is North Carolina is kind of having a down year on the basketball court. Their football program is emerging, but Mack Brown won that championship at Texas. So they haven't necessarily reached that height yet with the Tar Heels. And then the other program, and I think this is the one where you would say they get the edge over Oregon would be Oklahoma where Lincoln Riley has them as one of, you know, every year, one of the top five programs or so on the football scene, they seem to win the big 12 every year. And then Lon Kruger has taken Oklahoma to a final four recently, and they actually beat Oregon in the elite eight quite handily the year that they did that just a few years ago. So, you know, I think if you were debating head to head, I think it's pretty close between those two in terms of having peak performers on, on both the football and the basketball side. But, uh, but I, I wouldn't begrudge you if you if you chose Oklahoma in that debate.
0: Well, Mark, where would you say a team like Alabama or a school like Alabama falls into this conversation? Because obviously, on the football end, there's nobody that compares to Alabama. But they do have a top 10 basketball team this year as well. Doesn't that put them, you know, a, a significantly ahead of the University of Oregon?
1: Well, you know, if we're if we're just talking like this year, certainly, I mean, that that coach who is at Alabama is in his second year there. Nate Oates is his name, and uh, he came over from Buffalo where he, you know had a had a good run with a mid major. Alabama is not a basketball power by any means. They don't have necessarily a consistent track record. Uh, I don't think they've ever in their history been to the final four. certainly not in our lifetime have they have they advanced that far. So, so they certainly have a high ranking this year. I think it's it's to be determined as to whether they will they will do anything with that ranking. Whereas, you know, Dana Altman in the short time that he's been at Oregon, I think I think they've already been to the Sweet 16 four times uh, during that during that stretch. So uh, I do think that uh, certainly <laughs> Alabama is a different world as far as football is concerned. And so if you were looking to play for the best football team and a decent basketball team then you would certainly be uh smart to go to Alabama but I, I think as far as kind of the um peak level at both sports I I, w- I would give the nod to Oregon over Bama really okay so you would not, did I not convince you with that
0: well I mean let's be honest I think you know if you were if you were to try to like you know take like the medal of what each team has earned and put it into like two scales. I think just the weight of the football program of Alabama would just, you know, shoot them. The fact that the basketball team is in the top 10, whereas the Oregon basketball team is not even ranked in the top 25. uh, You know, I, I would tip those scales handily towards Alabama, but I mean, I can see where you're coming from in terms of like, you know, more of like a program, a head coach type of idea they're like okay altman has proven himself oregon has proven themselves as a program in the pac-12 more than alabama's basketball team but you know if the question is based on what we've seen this year uh, coming off of a national you know championship on the football end you got to tip the scales in the favor of alabama there
1: I think Alabama wins the argument if you're setting it up kind of like if you're looking at who are the best brothers to play basketball, and you just said Michael Jordan and whoever his brother is, you know that's that's kind of the way Alabama wins the argument is is you know it uh, all all we're looking for is like a basic level of of competence. So even if Alabama loses in the first round to a 15 seed, I mean
0: let's be fair. Like Alabama is ranked number seven in the nation. Oregon's not ranked in the top 25 at all.
1: Well, I mean, is that true right now?
0: Last I checked, as of a few hours ago.
1: My, my sole reference point these last few weeks has been Joe Lunardi's bracketology, which currently has Oregon as a six seed and Alabama as a two seed. So, yeah. you know, by that metric, Alabama is having a better year. They're going to win the SEC, or I believe they won the SEC. So they're also a conference champ. So, yeah, if you want to slice it very thinly in terms of this season only... Uh, and and kind of rule out recent history but it's worth noting that this would be the third uh, tournament appearance for Alabama in the last 15 years Sure. Sure. you know so this is this is not uh,
0: is this a program changing type of team for Alabama with a new coach maybe riding on some momentum with the the popularity of the football team or is this just kind of a case of a few great players coming together and then they'll be back to mediocrity as a basketball program. We don't know, but based on this year, I think you would definitely have to tip the favors towards Alabama. And I'm curious, you know, how you might look at that as well with, like we said, Oklahoma, also Ohio State coming out of the national championship game, also with a top 25 basketball team. You know, I mean, obviously this is a, a, a fool's errand Yeah. speaking in terms of how we would weigh this out. But in, in my estimation, the Oregon basketball team is not ranked in the top 25. The Oregon football team did not finish ranked in the top 25. So to stack them above Oklahoma, Ohio State, or Alabama, seems like a, a lot of mental gymnastics to me. <laughs>
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, I. I mean, I will. I will end it by by just saying that uh, to have a coach that has won a BCS game and a coach that has been to the Final Four at, in the same at the same time, they're one of two schools to have that. Ohio State doesn't have that. Alabama doesn't have that. Oklahoma is the only other school uh, that has that in their recent history. So, uh, I think it's all a matter of of the metrics that one uses to make that determination.
0: Yeah, and that's fair. I mean, if it's based on the coaches and their resumes, I think you've got a strong argument there.
1: Yeah, and and recent recent success of the program, I'm not talking about like 10 years ago, I'm talking about in the last five years. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing that I think is
0: without debate is that this year's Gonzaga team is looks like a team that is poised to finally bring home uh, that Uh, national championship to uh, to have that one shining moment how how do you feel about this Gonzaga team and its pursuit of perfection
1: well you know Warren I I went to college over at Whitworth College which is in Spokane and I went there uh, I enrolled there in fall of 2001 so I was there basically right as Gonzaga was taking off kind of making that transition from the Cinderella to more of like a team that was trying to be taken seriously as one of the best basketball teams so it was the same time that blake Stepp and adam morrison showed up on the campus at gonzaga and they became a high highly seated team during those years and so ever since then I've, I've had a soft spot in my heart for the gonzaga bulldogs and i root for them uh you know when they're not if they're not playing the ducks of course and uh and so I think for most people that have really been rooting for Gonzaga, the last few years have been really exciting. I mean, I mean they have had some incredible teams, if you just go back over the last seven or eight years, teams that um, really felt like they were capable of winning a national title. Uh, they've had three different teams that earned number one seeds. They had another team that was a two seed that made the Elite Eight. Last year, they certainly would have been a one seed had there been a tournament. Uh, they've made it to a national championship game that they were right in down to the final minute. So they've, they've really knocked on the door a few times. Uh, but this is the first year where it really feels like uh, a loss for Gonzaga would, uh, would be more than just like, ah, man, they couldn't quite do it. But it would be more like, ah, Gonzaga had the best team in the country and they couldn't, they couldn't close the deal. And that's a totally different kind of pressure once those games in March start happening, when you're carrying an undefeated record and you haven't really been challenged all season in any of your games, uh, it is a it is a different kind of pressure that Gonzaga is about to face this year.
0: Yes, and it's it's absolutely a fascinating study for me to think about the transformation of Gonzaga to, like you said, to go from that Cinderella team that's riding on. All of the the positivity of the nation behind them, and this little school from Eastern Washington, to now really being a powerhouse, and yet a powerhouse that has yet to bring home the trophy, yeah. and that's that's a unique uh, dynamic. In that, Mark Few, he you know, in many ways, he was kind of like the Chris Peterson of basketball. Yeah coaches bringing out the best in his players evaluating players and now he's kind of entering into a new type of mindset as a coach where he really is in some ways more like the Roy Williams uh, type of type of guy and how how does a team think differently coach differently play differently knowing that every team is coming at them uh, as if they are the New York Yankees, that they're the big, bad team on the block. How does that change them going into this, this season or this, uh, this, you know, March Madness playoffs? It's going
1: to be, it's going to be fascinating to watch it unfold. I I was thinking back to, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, Virginia was a number one seed and they lost to a 16 seed, Maryland, Baltimore County. It was the first time we'd had a one lose to a 16 in, in the men's tournament. And it was just this humiliating loss for Virginia, right? And it and all all offseason, they're thinking about it. And the way that that Tony Bennett kind of handled that is he, I'm paraphrasing here, but he essentially said to the team, like, if you try to ignore this or pretend it didn't happen, it's going to destroy you. And the only way we're going to get over this is if we can look at it, we can talk about it, we can identify it, and then we can move past it and so what happened then for that Virginia team is the next year they got into the tournament they were one seed again they're playing a 16 seed and within the first 10 minutes of the game or so they're down double digits and it felt like if you were if you were watching that game it felt a little bit like oh here we go again like this is this is Virginia they're they're going to choke this away and Tony Bennett he calls a timeout he brings his guys in and and he said, we can't panic, but we have to fight like crazy. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that line. And, uh, and the team said that just kind of resettled them. They came out. They win that game. And then if you look at the rest of their march through that tournament, they were pulling out all of these kind of crazy, bizarre games. They pulled out an Elite Eight game against Purdue that required this ridiculous sequence of events just to get it into overtime. They pulled out a Final Four game against Auburn where they got fouled shooting a three-pointer on the last play of the game. They had to win in overtime in the national championship game against Texas Tech. So it was just kind of this series of pulling games out by the skin of their teeth. And at the end of it, they were, they were national champions. Uh, Gonzaga is going to kind of need a moment like that, I think, where, uh, where they're facing some adversity And they overcome it in a way that gives them confidence the next time, because I can't emphasize this enough. They have not been challenged this year. They have had one game in single digits all season. That was early season against a good West Virginia team. Jalen Suggs got hurt early in that game. uh, You know, so there was even an excuse for why it was a little closer than the rest of the games, but they have just blown teams out consistently all year. And what's that going to be like, in the second round when they're playing a nine seed who has them down by six points with four minutes to go. Like what what kind of energy can they channel in that moment? But I think if they have a scare early in the tournament and they overcome it, I think that could really do them some favors down the road because I think they're, they're not going to blow every team out in this tournament.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's a reason why we call it march madness you know anything can happen you just talked about the virginia team who you know came into the tournament as a favorite and yet needed all of these spectacular plays and memorable events to take place in order to get to that championship game and to win it you know what what does what does gonzaga do what does mark few do If things just don't go their way uh, that, you know, they go out in the elite eight, they go out, uh, you know, in the sweet 16, what do you make of this season and what, and where do they go from there? Well, we have not
1: had an undefeated team in college basketball since 1976 indiana and there have only been four teams who have entered the tournament since then with an undefeated record all four of those teams lost in the tournament so you could even say as much as gonzaga is the favorite that the probability says they will probably lose in the tournament like you know that if you're taking the field versus the favorite it's always a good bet to take the field over the favorite just because of of the random you know, scenarios that are involved in, in March Madness. So the thing that I would expect, though, about, you know, Mark Few is, I mean, this team has been relentless over two decades of coming back the next year, rallying again and putting a good team on the floor. And if you look at the caliber of players that have left the program to the NBA just over the past couple seasons, it's really amazing that we're talking about a team that is undefeated that is clearly the national title favorite when they've lost, you know, four or five NBA caliber players just in the last two years and have replaced them with a, with a lot of guys. I mean, Jalen Suggs is, is an exception to this, but they've replaced him with guys that have just continued to mature up in the program. Corey Kispert is their leading scorer. He's a, he's a senior. He's been in the program for four years, was a role player, you know, when he first started and now has emerged into one of the best players in the country. And I would assume that uh, if Gonzaga loses this year and Corey Kisper graduates and Jalen Suggs goes to the NBA as expected, I would assume that Mark Few will will find a way to fill out a roster and they'll be, they'll be right back next year.
0: So Mark, if uh, Gonzaga and Oregon meet in the tournament, uh, who are you cheering for?
1: Boy, this almost happened in in 2017. Both of them made the final four. Oregon lost to North Carolina, kind of heartbreakingly so. And then Gonzaga lost to North Carolina the next game. And I actually had the thought of, gosh, if Oregon plays Gonzaga, that would just be fantastic because I w- I would feel like it was like my son is playing my nephew. You know, like you're 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 gonna be rooting for one a little more than the other, but you'll be happy. I I would actually it would not surprise me if I found myself pulling for Gonzaga, if that were the scenario. And I don't, people get offended when I say this, but like, I am, an, I am a Duck fan, certainly, but I am much more drawn to the stories around the sports that we root for. And Gonzaga has been such a captivating story for 20 years. If they're playing for the first undefeated season in history, like, I would just have a hard time rooting against that to happen, uh, I really, I really don't know what I would do if those two teams ended up playing each other.
0: Well, for all the drama and excitement of college basketball, uh, all of that was absent this past weekend for the NBA All-Star uh, game. What are your thoughts about this uh, this All-Star weekend, for for all of its uh, faults and, and failures? What do we take away from it? So
1: here's what I think about, Warren, is in 1992, when the original Dream Team was put together, they were having a training camp before the Olympics, and there was one member of the media in the building, Jack McCallum, uh, from Sports Illustrated, was the only member of the media in the building, and they basically had uh, a full court, five-on-five, intense scrimmage and Magic Johnson was the captain of one team and Michael Jordan was the captain of the other. And the way the story is told in the first half, Magic's team was dominating and Magic is talking all kinds of trash. And in the second half, Jordan's team comes back and Jordan kind of established himself as the alpha dog of that team of alpha dogs that it was kind of determined there on that game. And Jack McCallum has, has written about this and talked about it of, of this incredible site of being in the building and seeing arguably the 10 best players in the world just going after it you know and pl- playing as hard as they can and i think of all of the all-star games that we have you know the the pro bowl is a joke but it kind of has to be a joke because you have a week of time together and you're not going to really be able to like figure out protection schemes against blitz packages and everything i mean there are rules in the pro bowl about how many guys can rush the passer like it. It's a glorified, glorified flag football game. We all know that. And then there is, there is the Major League Baseball uh, All-Star Game, which I think is kind of fun. But you're also, you know, pitchers are only going to pitch an inning at a time. You're, you, managers are just trying to get everyone in the game. And so there's, there's not necessarily a lot of baseball strategy. The, the fun is maybe seeing this hitter versus this pitcher or something like that. Uh, basketball is the one all-star game that I feel like should be the most entertaining because it's the best players in the world. They're all incredibly ego-driven. And I would think, I would just, I would just assume that the competitive spirit of the game would energize them a little bit and they that they would take just as much pride in, in shutting down the opponent as in trying to score. And yet it's not that, like I mean, the halftime score of this year's All Star Game was 100 to 80. They there is just absolutely no effort paid towards any defense, and it's unwatchable. I didn't watch it. You didn't watch it. Like it's it's not a it's not a watchable product. But that that bums me out because I think if these guys really really wanted to make it into something better than that, it would be must see TV every year.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it, this is one of those things for me, Mark, where it's hard for me to really think clearly about this particular subject, because I'm talking now as a somewhat cynical adult compared to a starry-eyed uh, adolescent. You know, when I think back to those days, like the, the, the dream team days and, the, the glory days of Jordan and uh, Magic and Bird and Barkley and all those guys, you know, it was like such a thrill just to see all of those incredible players on the same court. And even back then, they were having fun. You know, the scores were often like 140 to <laughs> 127. Right. Uh, you know, guys were setting each other up for – off the backboard, slam dunks, and alley oops, and those kind of things. Um, you know, so it's uh, so I wonder, Mark, are we are we just making too much of this? Is is it just not supposed to be an opportunity to see some of our favorite players having fun, cutting it up with some other all stars on the team, and just a- allowing some of our imagination to 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 get the best of us of what it would look like if potentially all of these players could be on the same team. And I kind of wonder too, you know, I mean with the advent of the super team that was ushered in with guys like LeBron and Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade, has that, you know, robbed some of the magic Mm -hmm. of, an all-star game where you would never see LeBron James on the same team with Dwayne Wade except for in uh, an all-star game. Now, if you want to see Kevin Durant and James Harden and Kyrie Irving on the same same team, you can do it 82 nights of the year.
1: Yeah. And you know, now Blake Griffin, Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's just the the super team in many ways has kind of diminished the value of what, as kids, perhaps, we really got the most joy out of with those All-Star games.
1: I, I mean, I think there's something to what you're saying. I, uh, Am I making too much out of it? Sure. I mean, you know, that, that's what we do. But <laughs> I think uh, I, maybe what it is is I think I'm surprised that it's more fun for them to just kind of play in a game where they're not really trying <laughs> like i think i just i i think it's more i'm still just kind of surprised some of the most competitive athletes on the planet you know like somebody like chris paul chris paul is like a hardwired competitor you watch him in a game and he's always working the refs he's always you know getting in the face of his teammates or getting in the face of his opponents like that is a competitive dude right so like I just wonder is he really having more fun playing in like a game where where a team is scoring 180 points in a game that just it just i think it surprises me
0: (laughs) yeah i mean i get it you know I, i think that now more than ever with players making these ultra exorbitant amounts of money um you know the the idea of the business decision you know not taking a block in an all-star game, um, weighs heavily on those guys.
1: That's fair. Yeah. You
0: know, this is this is a lot of money on the line for these guys now, um, and I wonder too. Also, with just the pressure that many of these guys face, if this is just kind of, hey, it's a it's a fun break. It's it's a, an opportunity to just let it loose a little bit and have some fun. You know, if six guys get to score 30 points, (laughs) we're all happy kind of a deal. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I I guess I would say part of it, Mark, is probably our age in the fact that uh, now that we were older, we're a little bit more cynical. We're like, why aren't these guys playing defense? Whereas when we were kids, maybe we would have been more enthusiastic about the you know, the, the fast breaks resulting in slam dunks and, uh, you know, some of the excitement on the offensive side. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting thing, but I don't see it
1: changing anytime soon. No, I don't see it changing. Uh, the, you know, there was, is one interesting wrinkle of the All-Star game that I wanted to get your opinion on, Warren, and that's, are you familiar with the the experimental scoring system they used in the fourth quarter?
0: Not really, no. So,
1: me in. So they have a, uh, they're basically, they're trying to think of a way to make the end of basketball games less uh, tiresome. You know, you think about the end of a game where there's just relentless fouling for a team that's trying to overcome a deficit and it extends the last minute of a basketball game into, you know, 10 or 20 minutes. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, <laughs> referee reviews on top of that. And it, and it kind of becomes this thing where basketball is this beautifully fluid game until the last minute or two and it turns into this thing that's not nearly as entertaining as what came before it and so so what they've done with the all-star game is uh they turn off the clock in the fourth quarter and instead they're playing to a score and what they're and what they do is they pick a score that is 24 points higher than the leading team heading into the fourth quarter so if you have a team say they're uh they're up 76 to 70 going into the fourth quarter. They turn off the clock and they said, this game is over when a team reaches 100. Mm. And so the team at 76 only has to score 24 points. The team at 70 has to score 30 in order to win the game. And what that does is when you get down into the final possessions, if a team is is at 99, you're not going to foul them you're going to try to defend and get a stop and get the ball back so it rewards uh, stellar defense in the final minutes and it discourages fouling but the other consequences of that are there is nothing that we don't have a buzzer beater anymore if we went to this and there would be no overtime anymore yeah and so there is a there's very much a trade-off for having uh, you know that kind of <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, that is not a Husky. That is uh, my dog, Boone, who I think saw another dog. You might want to give me one minute here.
0: <laughs> All right, so apparently I'm not the only dog fan uh, listening to the show right now. Uh, but no, continue what, we, what you're saying, Mark, about the scoring.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what, where I was going with that is so it's, it's playing to a target score. It means no buzzer beaters. It means no overtime. Um, but it means that anytime a team is within, you know, two or three points of 100, you have a chance for a game winning shot. Do you like the idea of that? Would you like to see that experimented with more? Or are you totally opposed to the idea?
0: You know, I think ideas like that are fun in all star games that are essentially irrelevant but no, I do not like that idea. I, I, you know, imagining basketball without the possibility of an overtime, without the possibility of a buzzer beater, you know, I get it. There's, it's frustrating having the, the, the fouls slow down the game at the end of the game. But, you know, there, there are so many dramatic moments that have taken place during overtimes and double overtimes and, and those last-second shots to take that away is—I mean, think about it, Mark. Whenever you were a kid playing basketball, what did you do? You said three, two, one, and you shot the ball.
1: I'm with you. Yeah,
0: a whole generation of kids not having that experience—I mean, that would be tragic.
1: Yeah, I think I think I agree with you. I think it's a it's a fun idea, maybe worth some more experimentation. I like. I like the goal of it, which the, the goal of it is to discourage this endless fouling at the end of a game, which is difficult to watch at times. But I'm with you, I'm with you. The, the magic of a buzzer beater is the best thing about basketball. Um, the possibility of going into overtime is always an exciting prospect. And yeah, I think, I think it would be unfortunate to do away with that. And I don't think that's really being considered, but I thought it was an interesting novelty.
0: You know, and some things that start out as a novelty do become reality. I mean, I remember when I was in college, I went to a smaller school, went to a Division II college, Wingate University, right outside of Charlotte, uh, Wingate Bulldogs, and uh, I remember going to a a college football game uh, with with my dad. Actually, he came to came up to visit, and at that time. Division one college football did not have overtime, but division two and below had started experimenting with what is now the way that we do the overtime with the the two teams, each getting a shot at, you know, from the other teams, 25 yard line. And we watched that play out and we looked at each other and we said, why are they not doing this in division one? This is amazing. You know, And obviously the rest is history, right? They Division I college football did adopt the overtime. And I would say definitely for the better. I mean, it's it it it's almost bizarre now to look back at older records of teams and see those ties on there and go, Yeah. What could have been if they'd been able to go to overtime? For so sure. I'm all about innovation, but I don't like this innovation. I don't think this is better for the game of basketball. Fair enough. Well, continuing on the theme of basketball, um, so the NBA recently, uh, or I guess the 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 Basketball Hall of Fame recently released uh, their list of 2021 Hall of Fame finalists. Uh, so we've got a number of familiar names on this list, perhaps a few that might not may not be familiar but 14 finalists for the 2021 class so let me review those briefly and then mark i'd love to just kind of think through about who on this list is a, a lock to get yeah. in maybe who needs a little bit more uh persuasion and then who's like no way yeah That's not happening so this is the list uh rick Adelman, lita andrews Chris Bosch, Michael Cooper, Yolanda Griffith, Tim Hardaway, Lauren Jackson, Marcus Johnson, Paul Pierce, Bill Russell as a coach, Marianne Stanley, Ben Wallace, Chris Weber, and Jay Wright. Uh, So so Mark, just kind of your instant reaction, does this feel like a strong class uh, for the Hall of Fame?
1: Uh, Well, you know, I think last year's class, it took in amongst others, uh, Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan and Kobe. Yeah. Right. So, um, so this is not that class, (laughs) like, you know, a lot of these guys were on the ballot last year and didn't get voted in. Uh, so no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this compares to that one. I would, I would say, uh, Paul Pierce is far and away the the number one choice. Yeah, I think I think Chris Webber. If I if, if we're just kind of talking about the NBA uh, guys, you know, I don't feel um, competent to to talk about the the women's players on the list. But if we're just talking about the NBA guys, I would say Chris Webber in in part because I do think that the basketball Hall of Fame is not tied exclusively to the NBA. You can be inducted for your influence on the game in a variety of ways. So there are several international players. Uh, Drazen Petrovic is in the Hall of Fame. Arvidas Sabonis is in the Hall of Fame for their international accomplishments. Yao Ming is in the Hall of Fame in part because he's, uh, you know, brought the, the game of the NBA to, to China in a new way. Uh, and I think Chris Weber for his role on the Fab Five and his career, especially with the Sacramento Kings, I, I think there's an argument there. I think he's, he's of the same caliber of, of, of some guys that are in the Hall of Fame. I, I don't think uh, he, he would feel out of place to me. So if I were to you know, vote on guys on the list, I would use my first vote on Paul Pierce. I would use my second vote on Chris Weber, and then I'd have to think about it a little bit, but I, I, I don't know that I would vote for any of the others.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I look at this list and and Paul Pierce, that's a no-brainer. Um, he's an easy vote, and I, I'm shocked if he doesn't get in um, in year one, especially looking at who he's kind of stacked up against. If he had been in last year's class, maybe they, you know, kind of out of respect for Garnett and and Bryant, Kobe, uh, you know, they, they make Paul wait a year but he seems like the, the, you know, head and shoulders above everybody else in this class. Yeah, I'm not hundred percent sold on Chris Weber. I mean, you know, uh, unfortunately his legacy in college basketball, um, you know, is still somewhat a little checkered with the, you know, the, the ending of the fa- the fab five. Um, and, you know, in his, his NBA career, he was always he had some really, really good years, but he never felt like he was at the very top of the game, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, for any real length of time. Uh, there were definitely a couple of years where I thought, OK, this is the Chris Weber that everybody expected would come into the league and dominate uh, the way that, that I think a lot of the study would. But. You know, outside of Chris Weber, I think you, you could say the same thing for Tim Hardaway. Tim Hardaway is one of my favorite players from that era. I loved, uh, you know, the, the the crossover dribble. I loved the the run DMC. I loved the, the, the swag that he had uh, as a player. Do I see him as a Hall of Famer? You know, it's just like at some point you, you start going like, okay, if he's a Hall of Famer, then we need to put other guys in some even more elite Hall of Fame. You know what I mean? Like, there needs to be, like, a special room in the Hall of Fame that guys like Jordan and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic belong in. If you're going to have guys like Hardaway, Michael Cooper, I mean – Cooper was essentially a glorified role player, right? For the, uh, you know, the, the, the Lake Show with with Magic and Kareem and James Worthy and I mean, sure he was great, but certainly not someone that you would ever have built your team around. So it's, it's just this is a really interesting class for me.
1: So an interesting angle on on Tim Hardaway is he was part of the Run TMC crew in in Golden State, remember, with Chris Webber and Mitch Richmond.
0: Yeah, I think I said
1: DMC, but yeah, TMC. Run TMC, yeah. Well, both Chris Mullen and Mitch Richmond are in the Hall of Fame. Right. And I think Tim Hardaway was every bit the player that those two guys were. Yeah. Uh, I I don't think there's a huge gap between them. So if they... it does always kind of bother me in Hall of Fame voting when we start going like, is this guy as good as the worst player in the Hall of Fame? Because then it just seems like we're constantly kind of of lower the bar. Because I agree with you that if Tim Hardaway gets in, I would say Kevin Johnson should be in the Hall of Fame. Like those two guys, in my mind, super dynamic and, you know, incredible uh, first step dynamic point guards of the same era. Um, And so it does seem like you're just kind of, opening the door for other guys but i would say that if chris mullen and mitch richmond are the standard tim Hardaway's as good as those guys i would say chris weber is better than those guys uh you know grant grant hill was inducted into the hall of fame within the past couple of years i think chris weber yeah. is better than grant hill uh you know certainly had more playoff success than grant hill ever had uh so you know i i think I don't think those guys are um, would be a mockery to the Hall of Fame. You know, Alonzo Mourning is in the Hall of Fame. I think uh, Chris Weber and Tim Hardaway were as good as Alonzo Mourning. Uh, so. yeah,
0: that's a fair point. You know, it's like I said, it's almost like we need a special room in the Hall of Fame for those guys that truly are that elite group. Um because the difference between, like you said, like an Alonzo morning and a Tim Hardaway or a Chris Webber, it's pretty minimal. Yeah. The difference between those guys and, you know, uh, a Kobe Bryant, a Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, it's so dramatic that it almost feels like we're, you know, we're, we're diminishing the – yeah, you know, the the glory of of being in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I I, I totally it, agree. Now, is it to be a is it just to be to have been a really good player for five to eight years, and that's good enough to be in the Hall of Fame, or is it you were considered the one of the greatest of your era?
1: Yeah, and I think that there's um there is kind of an effort to reward guys who were on better teams so you know you mentioned michael cooper chris bosh is also on this list yeah Uh, Yeah. there is like a historical precedent for chris bosh getting in like joe dumars is in the hall of fame yeah uh you know somebody like that um and so i i under uh, dennis rodman is in the hall of fame uh you know was never better than the third best player on his team but it you know had a specific role and did it really well my here's my argument against a guy like chris bosh is that whenever i watched those heat teams with lebron and wade it was very clear that lebron and wade were the two best players right. and then there would be some moment in a game where like one of those guys is driving down the floor and the defense collapse on him and they kick it to Chris Bosch, who's like wide open in the corner, and he would drill a three. And then if Mike Breen is doing the game, he would respond with like almost surprise. Like he would be like, Chris Bosch with the three. And it's and it's almost like, oh yeah, and this guy is, is even contributing. And it was almost kind of like a little bit of a surprise. And I always thought like, yeah, he's not being referred to in the same way as like, Dwayne Wade is or or LeBron is. And I do think that's important because if I look at a team like the Spurs during the Duncan era, Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili would have games where they were the best player on the floor. Manu Ginobili had a game seven in the 2005 finals against the Detroit Pistons where he was the reason the Spurs won the game. And announcers were never responding with like surprised that Manu Ginobili is just making play after play it was more just kind of this delirious excitement of like Ginobili again like and they're and they're just kind of you know excited about it and so in my mind like just in terms of the emotional response I had watching basketball like Manu Ginobili is hands down a hall of famer and Chris Bosh is is not like he just never stirred my emotions in the way that that Ginobili did
0: and, you know, what's so interesting about that, Mark, is that, you know, it, it does say something about uh, the, the difference between a resume and what we know to be true from the eye test. Right. So just listen to the resume player one 10 time all star average 19.7 points, 5.6 rebounds, 3.5 assists. And won one NBA championship. Player two, 11 uh, time All Star, averaged 19.2 points, 8.5 rebounds, and won two NBA championships. Player one is Paul Pierce. Player two is Chris Bosch. Yeah. So, you know, you look at the resume and you go, well, I mean, Chris Bosch was every bit the good player that Paul Pierce was, but for anybody that was actually watching the NBA, yeah, you'd never come to that conclusion.
1: Yeah, because how many times in the end of a game did everybody clear out and say, "All right, Chris Bosh, this is all on you"? Because that happened Paul Pierce's entire career. Like, yeah. Now,
0: what is interesting with Chris Bosh though is that you know before Chris Bosh uh, went to the Miami Heat, he was with the the Toronto Raptors you know, he was considered to be a bona fide superstar. And and he had the numbers to back that up. He was the number one guy on that team. But then as soon as he got to the Miami Heat, it was like he automatically became that third wheel and really, I mean, in many ways, kind of took a back seat to, uh, Dwayne Wade and DeLeBron James. And so I wonder if that in many ways um, has helped shape our perspective on him and what what would have been different if he had stayed the, the alpha dog with a lesser team, putting on you know more heroic performances on his shoulders as opposed to being that guy that every once in a while steps in, scores 30 points because LeBron is having a bad game or Dwayne Wade is injured or something like that. You know, it's just an interesting thing to think about how we we feel about a player can oftentimes taint what they did or didn't accomplish on the court.
1: So along those lines, if we're talking like he and Chris Webber are an interesting comparison because they're both power forwards, right? So if Chris Webber, like his best season for the 2001 Kings, that was the team that went to the Western conference finals. They took the Shaq and Kobe Lakers to seven games, you know, had multiple chances to win the series. And that, uh, he averaged that year, 27 points and 11 rebounds a game, four assists a game, which is pretty good for a big man, you know, was, was considered an MVP candidate during that time and the kings had a little run there where they're winning 60 games and they're competing you know they're they're up near the top of the west and and just a really entertaining team do you think chris bosh was capable of anything like that can you imagine chris bosh being the best team on a team that's going toe to toe with the shack and kobe lakers like i just can't i can't imagine that team existing
0: yeah, I mean, and, and it is a different NBA now with with the culmination of these super teams. You know, a team with just one superstar really doesn't have a lot of a chance against a, a, a super team. So I think he saw the writing on the wall. He knew his best, his best you know, s- success was going and joining LeBron and, and, and Wade. But who knows? I mean, he could have been a 25, 28 point score for a depleted Toronto Raptors team. Maybe they do bring in a couple of guys that can accent what he's doing. In retrospect, there's really no way for us to know because of the decision that he made. You oh, know, like LeBron, you can see what he's done every stop of the way. It's it's a different story, I think, for a guy like Chris Bosch.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I to give him the benefit of the doubt, I don't know what he would have done. Uh, I think I I probably just assume that his ceiling was not as high as uh, as Chris Webber's. But I it also would not surprise me at all if he if he made his way in. Here's here's the one thing I do feel strongly about on this list is. Ben Wallace is on this list yes and Ben Wallace of course uh defensive stalwart on that those 2004 Pistons who who beat the Shaq and Kobe Lakers two of his teammates are not on this list but were eligible and that is Chauncey Billups Mm -hmm. and Richard Hamilton yeah and when I think of those 2004 Pistons I think of those three players and I always think of those three players together. That, that, that team was not like led by one alpha dog and a couple supporting cast members. It was, it was those three. And it was a starting five with Tayshon Prince, who was a brilliant defender and Rashid Wallace in a really interesting point in his career. And that team won the title because they had five guys that played together collectively in a really beautiful way. And I think I don't want Ben Wallace to get inducted. And I don't want Chauncey Billups to get inducted. And I don't want Richard Hamilton to get inducted. Not because I don't like those players, but because I love the idea of a team without any Hall of Famers beating a team that had Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, Carl Malone, and Gary Payton. Like, I just, I want to protect that legacy. And if somehow, if one of these guys gets in, then we probably have to elect all three of them. And then we're talking about, Oh, well, that team did have three hall of famers. It's not really a surprise, but in the moment for that 2004 Pistons to beat the Lakers in five games, I mean, it was just a dominant performance. It really was shocking at the time because it just didn't feel like those guys were of the same caliber as Shaq and Kobe in particular. And so uh, to protect the legacy of that team, I don't want to see Ben Wallace inducted into the hall of fame. I'm sorry, Ben, if you're listening, but uh, it's, it's, it's because I really, really enjoyed that team. Not because I, I don't respect what they did.
0: Well, and I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not a Ben Wallace apologist by any means, but you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about in terms of what we value on the basketball court. Yep. Uh, you know, if you took Ben Wallace and you said, if, if I told you, okay, This guy was an NBA champion and he was a four-time scoring champion in, in in his NBA career. You know, he, he averaged like 33 points a game four times in addition to winning a championship, in addition to being an all-star multiple times. Right. I think there'd be a sense of like, well, yeah, of course. But instead he was a four-time NBA defensive player of the year. Right. Defensive you know, being a defensive stalwart, it wins you championship, but it doesn't get a lot of sexy, you know, adulation. And yet that's that's a huge contributing factor to why those teams were so good, why they did beat that star-studded Lakers team in the way that they did. You know, so if you again, if you look at it from the perspective of what did he do and was he the best at at in his era at what he did and does that warrant being in the hall of fame you know there's an argument to be made that from 2002 to 2006 well it's not even an argument it's it's a closed case from 2002 to 2006 he was the most dominant defensive player in the nba he won the the defensive player four times he was an all-star all four of those years um And, uh, you know, all defensive first team, he was a two-time NBA rebounding leader during that same time. So for that five years, you know, you really couldn't have asked anything more from him aside from the fact that he was not a prolific scorer.
1: I agree completely, and this is where I want to be clear, that my argument is not based is not an anti Ben Wallace argument as much as it's a pro 2004 Pistons because I agree with you Ben Wallace yeah. was is arguably the best defensive center of our lifetimes like DeKembe Matumbo is in the Hall of Fame and I think is probably who most people would originally think of in that he also won the defensive player of the year four times yeah I I think Ben Wallace is on the same caliber of player as as DeKembe Matumbo especially when you consider his one championship that Ben Wallace contributed to, he was guarding Shaquille O'Neal at a time when Shaquille O'Neal was the most dominant player on the planet. And so, uh, yeah, again, if Ben Wallace gets in, it would be well-deserved. I I just really, really like the idea of of that team uh, kind of being the whole is greater than the sum of the parts.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and I wonder like, how does it how does it make you feel to think about a guy getting into the Hall of Fame with a career scoring average of five point seven points per game?
1: <laughs> well, what is Dennis Rodman's scoring average? I mean, that's got to be in the same uh, same ballpark, right? You know, uh, I mean, that's that's the comparison. I think with both him and Matumbo is that right. the, these are guys that uh, that were really great at one specific thing and not necessarily, you know, gifted offensive players.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, Dennis Rodman, 7.3 points per game. So just, just a little bit more, but not, you know, not by a, a large stretch, but um, yeah, I mean, you look at, you look at Ben Wallace and, and again, I think it goes back to like, what's more valuable, someone who is the very best at what they did for an extended, you know, amount of time for Ben Wallace, it was a five-year window or a guy who was just always really good, you know, like a Tim Hardaway, a Mitch Richmond, a Chris, I mean, all those guys were, yeah, they were really good, but nobody ever said, Oh yeah, he's the best at what he does in the NBA for even one year, let alone a five-year window. So, you know, I mean, again, uh, when you look at, how you rate that a lot of it does come down to many ways, how we feel about some of these players and, and what they accomplished. Well um, let's go ahead and we'll wrap it up. Uh, We were going to talk a little bit about the NFL free agency, but that'll be sitting around here next week, this time. Yeah. Go ahead and wrap up. Uh, But
1: Mark, do you have any final thoughts, uh, a Mark's moment or anything like that for us today? You know, my only marks moment is to just say we're in the middle of uh of one of my favorite kind of underrated sporting weeks of the year, and that is uh, championship tournament week for uh, leading into the NCAA tournament. It's kind of uh, the tournament before the tournament, and so I would you know encourage you if you're a if you're a hoops fan, like there are conference tournaments wall to wall over the next few days, and. I really especially enjoy the smaller tournaments where these are one bid leagues where the winner of the tournament is going to go dancing and the loser isn't. And there's no real guarantee that after they get to the tournament that they're going to, uh, even play a competitive game. You know, some of these teams will, will get blown out of the gym against, uh, against the top seed, but for them, just making the tournament is a truly, you know, uh, a satisfying goal and, a, and, a, and a, something that they've been working for all season. And so I always enjoy, uh, especially watching like the last five minutes of a close game where it's two teams competing for that spot to the dance, because they're all, they're all competing for the dream of being Cinderella. Right. And, and we have had this history, you know, we started the, the pod talking about Gonzaga and you know, their history as a Cinderella. We've had the Butlers and we've had George Mason and VCU and uh, Loyola of Chicago most recently. And all of these teams, you know, whether it's Winthrop or whether it's Moorhead State, uh, they've all got this idea that that's them this year. And it's fun to be at this stage where all of those dreams are, are still alive. So, uh, my marks moment is simply it's it's to be determined. It will be determined over over these coming days as uh, as bids get uh, given out to these various conferences.
0: That's great. And you published a marks moment this this morning, didn't you, Mark?
1: I did. I did a deep dive into kind of the last twenty years of of Gonzaga basketball and and kind of identifying you know uh, what was the best game, what was the worst game, what was who was the best player. Uh, and kind of had some fun just just kind of trying to unpack the history that has brought us to this moment where Gonzaga is, is trying to become uh, the first team to finish with an undefeated record in over 40 years.
0: Yeah, so if you haven't read, read that yet, be sure to subscribe to Mark's Moments, marksmoments.com. I'll finish off with a little story. Uh, so we mentioned a name in the Hall of Fame ballot, and uh, it's the name of Bill Russell. And when I was a kid, uh, my best friend growing up uh, was named Clayton Bland. Clayton was the tallest kid in our grade, um, which made for a great best friend uh, to always be hanging out next to the tallest kid in your grade. And, uh, And of course we were on the same basketball team together growing up. So many years out there in the backyard, playing basketball with and against one another And I always remembered in Clayton's room, he had two large black and white framed photos of Bill Russell. And I didn't fully understand who Bill Russell was as a kid and what his significance was to the game. I just knew that he had been a a great player for the Boston Celtics uh, well before I was born. And um, what I came to learn was that my, uh, my best friend's stepdad was the auto mechanic for Bill Russell when Bill Russell was living in Seattle. And so Bill would come there with his fancy foreign cars and get things fixed up and gave his family the, the framed photos of himself. And they developed a friendship with one another And so when I was in third grade and we had our end of the year basketball celebration at Clayton's house, our special guest of honor was none other than Bill Russell. No kidding. And uh, we had, we got to take photos with him. You know, so here I am, I'm about three foot nine, you know, as a little third grader. My dad is five foot seven and then standing next to us is Bill Russell at six foot 11 and um, even then I knew I was in the presence of uh, so, you know someone truly remarkable and great but he was classy through and through and uh, he provided a wonderful memory for a small group of young boys and so for that I've always been grateful for Bill Russell bill russell and consider him to be one of my all-time favorite nba players and so that's my p-dubs parting shot we'll wrap things up and say see you next week Uh, for the dogs and the ducks i'm warren and with me as always mark thanks and we'll see you next time